Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast. I'm Gib Gerard, alongside none other than John Tesh. John, how you doing? I'm, I'm excited because uh, apparently the podcast has had one of its best months ever, so people are starting to realize, well, maybe I should just listen to this podcast and no other podcast, and I'll be, <laughs> and I'll be fine. Listen to any podcast you want. Just keep listening to ours. Thank you to everybody who's been sharing it with their friends and showing it to yeah, people. Yeah, if you want to listen to Joe, what's his name? If you want to laugh, I wasn't going to say that. Yeah, guys, <laughs> I'm getting ready to say something bad. No, I like Joe Rogan. I, Joe Rogan actually used to go out with my uh, cousin, Leslie Tesh. I, I, I heard that. I heard that through the family great line. Anyway, if you want to, if you want to just listen to comedy or something, and he's a great interviewer. See, now I have to be nice because but I said I, is it his I, last I, name? I didn't want to call him out. Just anybody, any of these other podcasts. They're just not. They're, you're not going to get what you're going to get with Gib in his interviews. So I'll, just, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just leave it there. It's not. It, it, it's been yeah. very tiny. Now, now this is. Uh, I say I used to be. A, you are still an avid runner. I re, I was really an avid runner, and back in the days when Frank Shorter and Bill Rogers were running the marathon, I did a whole marathon piece. Uh, I've run one marathon with you. I've run four New uh, well, one New York marathon with you, and I've run. Um, Four other New Yorks. I, I'm a big fan of what it takes to get in that zone, even if you're going to finish in five hours, right? So this book by Ryan Hall is very interesting to me. I love the yeah. – would it be allegory? Would it be metaphor? What is it? I think, I think metaphor is what you're looking for. So the name of the book is Run the Mile You're In. And uh, in, in this interview, we're going to talk, we can talk about all kinds of stuff. But, uh, but the real thing is, is how his, his running life has mirrored his spiritual mm-hmm. and personal life. And one of the things that I always say – is that if you ever run a marathon, the first first eighteen or so miles, that's about how what kind of shape you're in, and then the last the last six to eight miles, that is all about your your mental right. stick to it. Yeah, it's it's a spiritual experience. It really that is. So it ceases to be a physical one and becomes a spiritual one. And then uh, and I, for me, that's what that's where the addiction in running marathons comes from. Is that like is that is that it's beyond the runner's high. It's something else where you're willing each each step in front of the other. As you're finishing a marathon, that to me is a great metaphor for how a lot of life works, and that is the metaphor that Ryan Hall uses in his book. And he, I mean, this guy is is as elite as elite gets in terms, as far as American runners are concerned. He is uh, American distance runners. He holds the U.S. record in the half marathon, has the fastest time ever run by an American in a marathon. Uh, The only one under under two hours and five minutes. Yeah, under two hundred five. Wow. Yeah. I'm uh, at the five mile mark at that point. <laughs> right, right. Uh, most of the rest of the people are, are, you know, are still eating their Wheaties and carbo loading, oh and he's gosh. almost done. So he's he's in that level, and, uh, and you hear about his faith too, huh? And you and you really and he talks all about it in the, in this interview, and he's uh, I, I found it very interesting. I found him to be very engaging, and uh, was he surprised? I love the metaphor. Was he surprised by your knowledge of the of the Bible and scriptures? No, we didn't get into that kind yeah. of detail, yeah. and and he's so much better at everything that he does that I that happens to overlap with me that I just asked him questions. I didn't really <laughs> like, oh oh you oh uh, you hold the world record in yeah. this? Well, you know I've run a couple of LA yeah, marathons. Yeah. Yeah, how about Mark eleven twenty four? Yeah, that's that, that's awesome. You know, it, it reminds me of an interview that I saw with the guy that we know um, who created Hamilton, uh, Lin Manuel Miranda. Yeah. Yep, yep. Uh, on the uh, and we you know we gosh you and I both studied him studied that show seen it many times and but seeing him on sixty minutes when they were asking him about how did you end up doing this he says I just picked a lane right and I just stayed in that uh, mm-hmm. in in that lane and so I I I love the thing I love the um I lo- I love the way Ryan puts this right uh, who said who is what does he say um uh, how to how do you how do you use 
the uh, the concept, right? Oh, oh run the it's, it's right there in the title. Run yeah. the mile you're in. Yeah, 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 yeah. So stay focused right there. Yeah, I can't wait. You're, you're asking great. me how to say. I don't, I don't know, know what I don't you're know. talking yeah, about. What, what is he saying? Where was I going? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I get excited. I get ahead of myself, and and this happens to me all the time with my wife when uh, when I, I'm trying to tell a story, and she's like, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, I just gonna, no. Gonna, the worst thing. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna actually do actual intelligence for life here for a second. But I will tell you this, and this has been this has been frustrating me today in particular. She's not here. She, she's fine. Uh, is where you'll you'll tell a story, and you will give all of the appropriate details right. that build the story. Yeah. You finally get to the big reveal. You know, there's a little bit of pacing involved. You get to the big reveal of the story, and she wasn't listening to the first half, <laughs> and so she's totally wait. She goes, wait, what? What happened with so and so? I was like, right. no, I, I said that at the beginning. So and so died, right. and that's why right. they met at the funeral, right. or whatever right. the story. And, and yeah. it, it's just, oh my gosh, she did that she, to she me. Got a migraine today, so I let her. I'm, I'm yeah, her, I'm giving her the benefit of the doubt. She did that to me at a concert where I was telling a story that, um, and she doesn't go. She doesn't sit in the audience of my concerts, our concerts now, you and me anymore because of the, because she just can't take it because uh, I don't tell the stories fast enough. But I I couldn't remember this one part of the story, and she yelled it out from the audience. <laughs> She finished the let's, punchline. Let's keep it moving, Tesh. These people want to hear you play the piano. <laughs> so speaking of intelligence for your life, before we get to Ryan Hall, which I'm, I can't wait for, um, 60% of employers, you, you need to know this. If you're looking for a job or you have a friend or a family member that's doing this, you have to understand that Facebook is a big part of it your is. calling card. It so really is. 60% are saying they'll search for you. And it used to be like 20%. But according to career expert Mari Smith, who wrote the book Facebook Marketing, great book, People with the most pictures with family and friends get ranked the highest when it comes to agreeableness. Pictures of meals that you've made or things you've baked. It shows that you have a nurturing personality. Plus, most importantly, shows you can follow instructions. How about yeah, that? So here's what I like about this. First of all, for years we've been telling you guys, watch what you put on social media because it can only hurt you. Right? This idea of, oh, that, that frat party that you went to when you were 19. Yeah, everybody goes to frat parties at 19. But you don't want your you don't want your future law firm to see pictures of you there. It just doesn't paint a good image. You want to untag yourself from all that stuff. You want to get rid of all the negatives. But now what we're finding is that you can actually put out a version of yourself that is positive and appealing right. Right. to uh, to to hiring managers. So instead of just not showing yourself uh, at the frat party, show yourself making the jello shots before the frat party. shows <laughs> <laughs> you can follow a recipe. Wow. I can see you put some thought into this. <laughs> How can yeah. I, how can I hack this idea? <laughs> but point being, like, look, you want to present you want to present the best version of yourself on social media for uh, for so many reasons, and that's not always the healthiest thing when it comes to yeah. interpersonal relationships. Yeah. But if you're going to put yourself on social media in general, and hiring managers are definitely looking at it, make sure that what you're doing shows that you are good at following instructions. If you built a robot from scratch, show that off because yeah. everybody wants to know. Everybody's interested in robotics, even if you work at a cupcake store, they want to know how if you've worked with robots before. I'm just, it's, it's the world we live in is my sorry. point. Yeah, sorry. I gave you a look. I'm sorry to be too. <laughs> All right. Uh, and then when you're on your way to your job interview, if you're stuck in traffic, make sure you have the Burger King oh, app, this. apparently. This is crazy. Because there's a thing called, you know, I, I just, I'm fascinated by the meetings they must have coming up with these ideas, you know, in the, in the boardroom. I'll tell so, you exactly what the meeting was like. Go finish ahead. the story. No, finish no, the story. And then yeah, I'll tell you the so meeting. Uh, they introduced something called a Traffic Jam Whopper. It's a delivery service that brings fast food to people stuck in traffic. Started in Mexico City. It's coming here now. So, th- so through the Burger King app, the food is delivered by like a moped right to your right to your car. It analyzes traffic data and everything. If you're stuck in traffic, you just order this thing and they'll they'll find you. Which is uh, with like, a burger. What could go wrong? 
What could go wrong? You got, you got somebody on a moped cutting lanes in the thickest traffic in the world to deliver you a cheeseburger because you're so stuck in traffic and lazy, and this is what our life is like now, that you can't even pull over to get them to hand you the food. But here's the deal. When you're you, done, would, you would do this. You, in a, would, you would order, in a heartbeat. You would order protein style. In a heartbeat, I would do this. Especially, like, let's say we're going, uh, if you're making the drive from Los Angeles to Las Vegas and that, that oh. it, gets, it gets bumper to bumper, or even Palm Springs. Just have the guy stay with you. Yeah. <laughs> just Can you just keep going? Can you go and run and get, like, I, I'd like a nice tea? Just have this is your own personal courier. In right. fact, I might even lash a moped to the back and have some of the guys in the car just go off to the quickie like mart and like come a, back. Like a, a, a Burger King sidecar. Yeah, yeah. Or like, you know, like, um, what's the name of the uh, the portage? The little, the little, the uh, the ship, the little boat that you take off of the ship to yeah. go in. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. that? I think that's what it's called. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, here's what the meeting was like. 99%. There's some people who will only eat at Burger King. Some people who will only eat at McDonald's. Some people who only eat at the ja- right. Jack in the Box, sure. right? Like that's yeah. their thing. Yeah. Yeah. Those people aren't going to switch. They're not, but, but for the rest of us, 99% of our fast food decision making is an impulse purchase. It is, I'm hungry. There's food that's convenient and fast. I'm going to eat it. What Burger King is doing to rise above the, the fray is they're coming up with an idea. This is what the board meeting was like. What is, what is the potential downside and how much free press are we going to get? We're talking about this right now because it's an insane idea, right. but it's an insane idea that's so insane, we have to talk about it, and this is, this is a great example. So that's what the board meeting was like, but I really I think I'm onto something here. It wasn't I, actually in the board meeting, but it's I want to create thing. a line of electric motorcycles uh-huh. that you can, that, and it, they fit like right onto the back of the car. So when you're on a road trip with your buddies, and you're in that inevitable stuck in traffic. One guy, call him Geezer or Scoot or whatever. <laughs> it's his name, whatever his nickname is. Geezer. He's got to get out, and he takes the electric bike and he goes and does the little run to the to the Seven Eleven as you know off the side of the road and comes back with the stuff. That's well, yeah. that's Geezer's job. Well, you know how you know how uh, the craft craft beer is now more successful than the than the big not, yeah. not more, but you know it's 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 more more palatable yep. than, than the big beer companies and macro and, uh, versus yeah, micro it, 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 and then and then the uh, you know the the uh, smaller smaller coffee brewers that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think micro I, roasters, right? Exactly. I think what you can what what we could do is we could put together we could get on a Shark Tank with this, put together a scooter, right? Because you got me inspired here with two hibachis on the back. And you cook your own burgers on your way, so oh, the burger yeah. is still steaming, yeah. right? And it's and it's grass fed beef, and and I would order, of course, the bison burger. Okay, so but, but what we do is we create this. It's a food truck that we just drive into traffic. Okay. We just sit in All traffic. Right. We start right. serving people when we're in traffic. I'm sorry. Would you, would you did you guys want to hear this interview? <laughs> Look, we're ideating right now. This is a part of our process. Bottom line, Burger King is doing this. You, you can order. It's starting in Mexico City. Where else is it going to be? Uh, it's going to be in Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah because yeah. wherever there's traffic. <laughs> right. um, but but I, I've already come up with a name for it. It's, it's Hibachi John's. Um, Maybe Hibachi John or maybe Hibachi Gib. That's fine. No, no, it can be Hibachi. Yeah. Hibachi John's has a nice. Hi, ring Hibachi to Gib it. is chicken. You know. Yeah. Or, or sword, swordfish or something. I don't know. Uh, anyway, so uh, <laughs> so run the mile you're in. Love the one you're with. No, that was like a 1960s yeah, yeah. song. If don't do that. Don't do love. that. Yeah, yeah. Run the mile you're in. I cannot wait for this. I, I'm and I hope I I hope that your your uh, anticipation is uh, well placed because I, I really did enjoy my talk with Ryan. Here it is, Ryan Hall. Ryan Hall, thank you so much for your time here with us on Intelligence for Life, the podcast. Yo, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So you, so he, I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you because I mean, you have a lot of, you're an Olympic athlete, uh, you, you hold the American record for the half marathon, I've run a few half marathons, your new book, Run the Mile You're In, Finding God in Every Step, 
it, it's a it's a great book. Link to that in the show notes. But most importantly, I want to talk to you because I also I run I run marathons, and your perspective is very similar to mine, which is there's something in the doing of it, and that that is that is almost a a, a spiritual metaphor for life. Oh yeah, totally. I mean. That's I think that's what kind of sets running apart as a sport that's maybe different than other sports. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when we're watching NBA games, we can't go out on the court and play on the same court as those guys. You know, um, whereas in running, it's like you get like we're all lined up on the same starting line. Um, sometimes it's multiple guns. Sometimes it's just one gun and everyone goes, you know. Yeah. And so we all get to like re re like go through this experience together and we go through it at different speeds of course but we I, I remind people all the time when i'm speaking at different races that we are going through the same exact thing as you guys like the doubts that are coming to my mind are the same kind of doubts that probably come into a lot of people's minds so mm -hmm. that's what i love about running it's it's so relatable to not only other runners but other sports and just life in general yeah, I mean, and, and but you're here's the deal. That's a great question, though, because you're a great athlete. Obviously, you can't become a record. You can't become an Olympian if you're not a great athlete. You could have done other sports. Why did you settle? Uh, I understand why I run because, like you said, I'm not going to be able to play uh, uh, on an NBA court. But um, why? Why did you choose? Why did you choose running as your go-to sport? Because again, like it is kind of a loner's thing. Yeah, totally. And it especially was for me, you know, I grew up in Big Bear Lake in Southern California and we mm -hmm. didn't even have a track or cross country team at my local high school. Is that so, right? Yeah. There I feel wasn't like it's the even... cheapest team to get out there. I know. Right. And like high participation, most yeah. schools have it, but ours didn't. And we're up at 7,000 feet in the mountains there. It's a perfect place to train. Same altitude as, you know, the Kenyans are training at, the Ethiopians are training at. And yet we didn't even have a program. So when I, I used to hate to run, I wanted to play professional baseball. That was, that was my goal. And then one day I was going down to a basketball game. I was playing basketball at the time in eighth grade, 13 years old. And I remember looking out over Big Bear Lake, which is a lake that's just beautiful up mm -hmm. in the mountains, 15 miles around it. And just feeling like God kind of put this little desire in my heart to try and run around the lake. It was almost like he just kind of issued a little challenge. He's like, let mm. me put this out there for you. Mm. And uh, I'm so gra uh, grateful that I, decided to act on that and to accept the challenge because accepting that challenge changed the trajectory of my life wow. uh, completely. Um, and from that moment on, I went from, uh, you know, the next Saturday, my dad and I went uh, and laced up our running shoes and went on a very slow and long and painful 15 mile run around the lake. And I mm. made it. I had to take like multiple stops. Wait, nice your my leg. first run out, your first decision to run was a 15 miler? Yep. Yep. <laughs> so, I mean, I think kind of everybody knows what that feels like, but that's a big run. I mean, when I, it is. when I, before I had kids, I was, I used to run a lot more than I do now. And my big Saturday run was between 10 and 15 miles. That's a big run. Right. Yeah. It's a huge run. But, you know, I think that's kind of like God like knows how he made me. And like, I just love taking on epic challenges like that. Like mm -hmm. I always have. So it was like the perfect gateway for me into the sport it's not the perfect gateway for everyone you know no but for, and, for me yeah, i feel totally like you me. people if people go that long on their first run they blow out and then they don't right. want to run for like three months later right yeah that's that's the typical experience but my experience was i came through the front door just exhausted collapsed on the couch 
I felt like God was telling me, like, he'd give me a gift to run with the best guys in the world, but he gave me that gift so I could help and love other people. Mm. And so that was the launching point, you know, and I wrote about that in the first chapter of my book and about how I fell back on that vision over and over and over again. I went through a lot of really tough times. One time I dropped out of Stanford during my sophomore year and wasn't sure if I was going to go back and I was just super down and depressed. And it was moments like that where I just went back to my 13 year old self and that vision that I have um, and asked myself the question, have I done this yet? And if the answer is no, then I got to pick myself up and keep moving forward. Mm. And, and, and obviously you did. So did you, did you end up graduating from Stanford? I did. Yeah. Yeah. So after that kind of, it was kind of like an identity crisis an identity issue I was going through. And I think probably a lot of people can relate to this where you take what you do and all of a sudden it becomes who you are. And it's mm-hmm. kind of hard in our culture today. Cause that's one of the first questions people ask you when they meet you is like, Oh, what right. do you do? Right. So they're like trying to get to know, they think they're trying to get to know you, but really they're just learning about what you do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but for me, like, so whenever I'd fail, I'd really internalize it. I was really hard on myself. Right. I take my failures really personally, really hard. Um, I saw it as like a personal shortcoming and then that kind of shifted when I got super down, super depressed, left Stanford, and then thought I could change what was going on inside me by changing my location. And that that was a mistake. I went home and got even more depressed. So I ended up choosing to come back to Stanford. And during that time, I started to spend a lot of time in stadiums. I don't know why, but I always loved like being in giant stadiums. So I'd go into the football stadium and take my journal and Bible in there and just spend like 15, 20 minutes. It wasn't a long sessions uh, with God in there. And, and I started asking him like how he sees me and as he started to show me that and I started to see myself that way and totally just shifted of how I saw myself as being important what makes me a value what makes me special because I think that's something we all want to experience right is like just to feel like we're there's a, a purpose for us being in the world and there's something special and unique about us and when when I ask God those questions that's how I felt um, when I heard, you know, kind of his responses. Yeah. And so then after that, it was just a gradual shift, you know, that happened in my heart and it started to manifest itself physically. Things slowly, slowly started to come along better. And, you know, by my senior year, I ended up winning uh, the NCAA title over 5,000 meters on the track. And um, that kind of launched me into professional running and um, all I got to experience thereafter. I feel like there's so many great metaphors just into what you just said, like first and foremost, this idea of of understanding your purpose in general um, and having to take the daily steps to get there. So like that's a run, in my opinion. If I don't know like the length of my run, um, I, I find I get tired a lot faster. If I'm just like, yeah. if I just, if somebody takes me on their run and I don't know how long it's going to be, I don't, I've never run it before and I, and I'm, I'm just not psychologically prepared, three miles hurts. But if I'm, <laughs> but if I know that it's going to be a six mile run, the first three miles don't hurt. I don't, I don't know how to explain that except that if I know, if I see the goal, if I understand the destination, every step becomes easier. Every step becomes a different fraction of where I'm headed. And I, I, cause I understand why I'm taking that step. If, if the person's just like, Oh, it's just a little bit farther around this bed and then down a thing. And like, I, I not knowing messes with me um, psychologically. <laughs> and, it, and it sounds like that does the same thing for you in your life that that does for me when I'm running. Yeah, for sure. I mean, without like having your eye on the destination, 
you just feel like you're kind of wandering around in right. the desert. Or at least that's how I felt, you know? So I'd have to constantly remind myself of where I was going, what I was going after that original vision. That was my destination. And I had to see it as like a magnet that was almost like pulling me towards it. Mm-hmm. And then I also, I love your, I love your, um, I, I feel you on the on the being in very public, crowded, what would normally be crowded spaces, but when they're empty, there is something kind of beautiful about that. There's, it's almost like more calming to be in a stadium when it's empty or there aren't, it's not full of 50,000 people. It's just, you know, a couple of people running on the track or whatever. I, I totally get that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't know why. I love it. It's like, it's like an empty palace. There's something about it where you almost feel like you, like you own it. I, I do a lot of, um, right. we do a lot of live shows for intelligence for your life where we're, we're on the road and, uh, shameless bug. You can check us out at teshmusic.com. You can find where we're going to be, but, but there is something about wandering the theater when nobody else is there and sitting wherever you want and just kind of, you feel a sense of ownership over the place that you're in that I think um, that is kind of that is kind of great. It's like it's like being in an empty church, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love that. That was actually where I decided to go to Stanford because I was pretty confused in the process. You know, I was being recruited by a bunch of different schools and took Stop five bragging. different trips. <laughs> so um, but I remember just being like, yeah, like really confused, not really feeling like. I was hearing from God where I should go and until I went to the chapel at Stanford University. If you're ever on the Stanford campus and you have a chance to go into the church, you should definitely check it out. It's like an amazing church. And there's like this organ music like blaring. And mm. But I was in there pretty much all by myself. There might have been a couple other people. And yeah, it was just like sometimes it's just easier to connect with God and and I don't know, just get like kind of like a vision for your life and where you're going when when you put yourself in those kind of atmospheres yeah there's something kind of beautiful and clarifying about it um i don't yeah, know it, totally. the extra negative space or just the i don't know i don't know it's it's great i totally agree so you have been talking you talked to you briefly mentioned it in this conversation is this idea of um how you dealt with failures and setbacks and how you kind of like when you lose your purpose how do you compensate for for failure yeah so i man that was the story of my career was learning to deal with failure i feel like that's and the story yeah, of everyone's career too right like you hear about yeah. steve Jobs. i mean in any avenue not just running again one one of the things i love so much about your metaphor but keep going right yeah totally it's like I, my perspective of failure shifted over my career and it, it largely shifted when i had that kind of like shift in identity about you know what makes me special is not my performances it's right. just who i am you know and so that kind of shifted my view of failure to where now like i could not i could fail and almost observe it like a cloud passing in the sky it was like mm -hmm. something that was real something that happened to me but it was something that was supposed to lead me on to my destination and and actually be like a vital tool for me to get to where i wanted to go but it doesn't work very well at least not for myself when i let that, that failure really discourage me and get me down right but i don't think failure has to be like that. You know, I think if we frame it in the right way in our own minds, we can see it as, as an important part of the process that is extremely, extremely valuable. I feel like that's a really popular sentiment right now in, um, I mean, you know, we've talked to a lot of life coaches, a lot of business coaches, a lot of entrepreneurs on the show. And, and it's also really, it's baked into the Silicon Valley mentality right now, this idea of fail fast and that mm -hmm. failures aren't failures, they're learning experiences. And I think, I don't know, I don't know what it is about 
the zeitgeist right now that's making people really latch on to this concept. I think it's always been true. I mean, even yep. Thomas Edison used to say, if I, right. if I, if I have a hundred failed experiments, I don't have, it wasn't a failure. It was a hundred ways that I now know it won't work. Um, and, and so we, we, we I, I don't know what it is that people are really latching on is why is it so, why is it gaining so much traction in people's minds right now? I, I, I guess is my question. Yeah. You know, I don't know. That's a good question, but I'm glad that it is because that has <laughs> certainly been my experience. Like there, you know, we, it's easy to focus on the like handful of like really big performances and, and successes, but like that was not my typical, you know, my mm -hmm. typical was, was, you know, somewhere on the spectrum between like really hitting it and, and doing terrible. And it would vary depending on, you know, the day where it'd be. But, um, that's something that I learned about the price you have to pay to figure out how good it's something you can get is you have to realize there's going to be a lot of failure along the way. And so that was something that was really important for me in my book to communicate to readers. Cause I remember when I was 13 years old and had just gotten into the sport, I remember one evening I was doing some like 300 meter hill sprints on this hill and it was just gently snowing, like those giant snowflakes come mm -hmm. down super slow. And I remember just having this thought, like, what is it going to take for me to go to the Olympics? And I had no idea, you know, like I didn't know any Olympians, um, hadn't read any books by any Olympians, was, like internet was just getting going. So we didn't have as much information floating around as we do now. Right. And I uh, just feel like the biggest thing was learning to get back up and pick myself up quicker the next time out, you know, like I, I, I think it's okay to get disappointed by our failures, but we put a, my wife now, we like to put a time, a timestamp on it. It's like, mm -hmm. all right, I'm be disappointed for 24 hours right. or however right. long you need. But then after that, like I'm picking myself up and I'm moving forward. And, uh, I think that's, that's a really important perspective to have. Your approach to failure and disappointment is so unbelievably evolved and mature. I just don't know that I have that in me. <laughs> All right, I get to be disappointed for a day. Like, I, I, I don't know. I want to ruminate on it for six months and keep myself awake at night for the next year when I'm falling asleep. Like, oh, remember that time I failed? <laughs> well, I still have those moments, too. Yeah. You know, like, there's still those moments I can reflect on. I'm like, oh, man, that still can, like, get under my skin if I let it, you know. But when I'm not my best i try to try to monitor that yeah. the best i can you have this almost supernatural um approach to your goal right like where yeah. where where god puts this on your heart and it just kind of starts it 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 goes from the spiritual and the mental into the physical manifestation so quickly um do you have any like for those of us that don't necessarily get that lightning bolt from heaven experience with our goals where even the the tangible element of the goal this idea that you were going to uh you were going to run with the most elite runners and and use that as a platform to speak into people's lives like how how do you find that how do you find that tangible end goal yeah yeah that's a great question because it's not always clear you know and i've had other areas of my life where it wasn't clear and i wrote about this in my book one thing that's really helpful for me is when i'm uncertain of where I'm going, the destination, the vision. I, I surround myself with people that are close to me, family members, friends that know me really well and, and start to ask them like what they see. Because sometimes like, I feel like I'm so much in the battle. Like I don't have a good perspective. I'm like too much in it. You know, I need someone who's up above it that has a bird's eye view. that can look down on everything and be like, listen, like you have all these talents inside you. Like 
have you ever thought about like how it could work for this doing this mm-hmm. or going mm-hmm. after this you know so i think i think that's super super helpful um to just surround yourself with those people and just um have conversations with them being like well what do you see about me like what what gifts what talents do i have um wh- what direction could you see my life going and and they can be a really nice catalyst just to start the conversation and get you kind of through that the the being muddied from being down in the trenches yourself. And, and how do you find that? Even how do you find that person? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, hopefully you have that <laughs> that person. Like I was blessed to like have family and friends. I, was close. I didn't have a lot of friends, but the friends I did have is pretty close with, you know, and there was a couple of friends that just like totally um, influenced my life in a really real and tangible way. So, um, building community, putting yourself in community, I think is, is super, super important. And something I learned in my career, it's like for me to get to the best version of me, I had to be surrounded with great people. Like it mm-hmm. wasn't like I was putting myself out there every day, but it was like a team, uh, literally like a team uh, experience. You know, I had nutritionists I was working with, I had chiropractors, massage therapists, coaches, you know, the list like goes on and on of all these people who, who aided me on my journey. So I would have never gotten there if it was just me in isolation doing it by myself. Right. Right. And, and, and you had these people who were just sort of naturally around you because of, because of the, you were a college athlete at that point. Yeah. Yeah. In college. Um, yeah. Teammates, coaches, friends. Um, and then, you know, I was actively like going out and seeking it out too. Like I was involved in a lot of, um, like, like athletes in action, for example, mm-hmm. I was the organization I was involved in and had a mentor through that, that, you know, would sit down with me and, and talk with me and hear my heart and give me direction. So, um, I think, you know, it does take some, uh, it, it I don't think community is always something that happens to you. Sometimes it's something you have to go and search out. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's important. I think that's, I think that's hard for introverts sometimes, but, but I mean, I hear what you're saying. Like the more you're in community, the more the people that you want to speak truth into your life become apparent and available, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. So here's, here's another question. Like, so you have this per, you have these people, you have this direction um, you have this goal. How do you know, first of all, how do you know how to keep going at the goal versus how to restructure the goal, uh, or V or, or restructuring the goal at all? I, Cause you say you want, you should set your goals in stone, um, in, in, mm-hmm. in your book. So why, is there any room for adapting your goal to the circumstances as they change? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it kind of goes back to like that vision and have you accomplished the vision that you originally had for yourself because it does require a certain amount of stick to itness, you know, like where you can't just throw on the towel the first snag that you hit along the way. And sometimes it's years and years of snag, you know, so um, there is that part of it. But then there's also like a healthy time where it's like, you know, maybe this goal is not going to happen or it's not possible mm-hmm. or, you know, there is a time to like reevaluate in there for sure. So yeah, we used to, my dad and I, we used to write our goals and cement in our backyard every summer. And, you know, we accomplished some of those goals. We didn't accomplish some of those goals. Um, I think what I learned is just to have my goals with open hands. And so it was like something, a target I was shooting for, but at the end of the day, if I didn't hit it, like I was okay with that, you know, mm. like I was, I was okay with some like movement within that goal. And I think that was a really, really healthy perspective 
for me to have because sometimes like the truth was for myself anyways like no matter how bad I want something no matter how much I believe no matter how hard I work sometimes I just can't do it like it's not physically in the cards and that that needs to be okay and you got to change your definition of success and for me how my definition of success changed was Success is not hitting the goal. Success is going after the goal with everything inside you Mm. and seeing where you land like that. That's success. And so when we put our goals in cement, it wasn't so much about hitting the times and the goals and the places. It was about the pursuit and going on this pursuit together and holding each other accountable towards going after this thing with everything inside of us. I feel like with running, that kind of goal setting is so the is so obvious in other words, like you have a you have a race that you want to run, a time a time that you want to qualify for, or time that you want to hit, or race you want to qualify for, an event you want to qualify for, is how how do you set that in some of the more intangible parts of life? Yeah, so I wrote about this in my book. Like my over the years, my goals kind of changed from these very tangible times, places, et cetera, mm-hmm. to more like goals that I knew I could achieve every time. So I talk about goals of the heart. And so I found that I was much stronger when I was focused on like keeping my heart in the right place than when I was focused on trying to hit a time and um, trying to make something physically happen. So I would choose goals that I knew I could hit every time out. So it was like, all right, today the goal is to, to run thankful. And every single time I come through the mile and I, I look at my mile split, no matter what it is, like I'm going to choose to be thankful for that mile and the energy that I have had in my time for that mile. Um, and, and maybe another day it's, I'm going to be focused on love and loving other people. I wrote about this in the Beijing Olympics, um, when God was telling me to encourage other people around me. And so my goal during that run was just to encourage other people. And that really strengthened me and I ran better because of it. So, um, I really encourage people to kind of go after things, create goals for yourself that, you know, you can accomplish every time out and it's not dependent on your own performances or how the weather is or what your competitors mm-hmm. are up to. That makes sense. I mean, and like you said, it's, it's a goal of the heart. It's really about your approach and your positivity and less about the actual results. Right. Absolutely. But, but I mean, I was, but at the same time, like, don't you kind of need a results-based goal? Otherwise, I don't know. I guess getting off the couch is enough, right? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I, I see what you're saying for sure. I've actually been thinking about this a lot because I got into weightlifting after running and it's like, you have to track your progress, right? right so right. it's like, like I have like down, written down my personal best for each and one of my lifts and I want to see progress every couple months. And sometimes I feel like, you know what, like, I just don't want to worry about it. Like I just want to enjoy my lifting and not, right. not worry about making progress. But then I stop making progress. I'm stopped. I'm stopped growing and getting better. And so it is this balance of, and it becomes less enjoyable when you're not making progress. Then you, then you lose lose heart. Right. Totally. So like, I think it's okay to have those performance goals, but they shouldn't be the main objective, Mm. you know? And, and like I said, with, I love just the cloud passing in the sky. It's like, you're analyzing your performances like that. It's like, this is just data. It's just giving me feedback. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's directing my training, directing, you know, how I'm going, my approach to training. Um, but it's, it's at the end of the day, it's not the number one goal, the thing that has to happen. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, so, so it's, yeah. So it becomes more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It, just, it, it becomes more of a framework in which you're operating and less of, less of the thing that you need, um, in order to get your confidence in order to get your identity. 
Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I make sense. Do you use an app to track your weight, your weight training or do you do it uh, manually? With a I just, uh, I have some mirrors. So I lift in my garage and I have some mirrors up on the wall so I can see how I'm moving. Mm. And I, I write down with a, a dry erase marker on, on the mirrors and track my progress and mm. track my workouts and, and make sure I'm seeing some growth along the way. Otherwise I, I'm quick to, to switch things up. Cause that's something that I learned about running, weightlifting, just physical fitness in general. It's like your body very quickly adapts and gets used to whatever you're doing. Right. So, um, you know, this, this, like p90x style of training of changing things up mm -hmm. is in my mind super effective way to go about doing things you always got to be uh you know quote unquote trying to add some weight to the bar right right and and, and <laughs> i like that it's a, both a metaphor and a literal thing when it comes to weight training yeah yeah totally it's like if i'm not if i'm not trying to lift more weight than i can handle i'm not growing i'm not getting better and okay so you have these setbacks you, you become a professional runner you decide you want to get to the olympics how do you how do you go about transitioning from college athlete to Olympic athlete? I, I'm, I'm yeah, going back you know, to the fun. linear narrative. I know we've got all, way all over the place, but I want to get back to a little <laughs> bit of the linear narrative. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was an interesting process to go through because it's like as soon as you master one area like high school level competition, you move to the next one mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden you're at the bottom of the college competition and then you slowly master that and get to the top of college competition mm -hmm. and then you're thrown into pro running and you're at the bottom. You're just kind of like starting over from scratch all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was, it was a tough adjustment, you know, but I think being able to frame failure in a positive light was a big a big, uh, nice way for me to do that. And also to have like failure, like it directed me in a really important way. After my first year running professionally, I was on the track and I was running against some of the best 5k runners in the world and just getting lit up. I remember I was watching the jumbotron as I was running my last lap. Cause I was so far behind. I was just like totally out of the race, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, it was that failure that made me be open to the idea of trying longer races. So I, uh, you know, started doing doing um half marathons and marathons after that and things just really really clicked but that would have never happened had i not you know had those failures on the track right right and you've run you so you set the american record for the half marathon um how did you go from deciding you weren't going to be a 5k runner anymore to being a record setter yeah, it happened really quickly. So, you know, that, that 5K that I was talking about was in the summertime. And then six months later, fast forward is when I set the American record in the half marathon. So wow. as one of those things. That's yeah. exceptional. That's exceptional. Yeah, yeah it's it was one of those things, though, where it's like I was so proud and of trying to be like a miler that was my original goal mm -hmm. and then i was like too proud to move up to longer distance running because typically like marathoning at that time was seen as like something you do like in the twilight years of your career after you can't get any faster on the track so weird here i was yeah. And so here I was, you know, transitioning really early, I believe around the age of 23, 24 years old to it. And it felt like I was like violating the rules, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so I had to let go of 
my own pride and be like, I'm open to doing whatever event I'm going to be best at. And when I opened up my hands and started trying the longer stuff, it just clicked naturally because that's how I was designed, like with my muscle fiber types. And mm-hmm. um, that's just naturally like what I'm good at. So when you go to something that you're naturally good at, um, it's very easy to see exceptional results really quickly. And that's kind of, um, that's can, that can be, uh, What's what's the word I'm looking for? that can underscore or help remotivate you when you redefine your purpose like that and you find oh my gosh, my body was meant for this, my mind, my heart, my soul was meant to go in this direction. Like you can just feel it click like that. Yeah, and it's such a good feeling. Like I remember feeling like when I was on the track, like I was beating my head against the door, like trying to mm-hmm. get through the door, but not using my hands, just beating my head right. against it. <laughs> uh, it just things were not clicking, you know. So when when certain things aren't clicking like that, I always encourage people like it's okay to try something else, you know, and and keep experimenting till you find what works for you. Because ultimately, like we're all experiments of one, right? So like what works for me for nutrition might be terrible for some else and vice versa you know so you you don't know until you try and i think it's really important that we are open to experimenting on ourselves to some degree yeah i mean i think i think self-experiment again like that's part of this this modern this kind of new thinking where where you fail fast and you self-experiment and you use your failures to try to refine your thought process and i think it works for running but i think it's working a lot more for people in life right now which is which is kind of interesting that, that, that that's happening. That the world has kind of changed, particularly the Western world has kind of changed its perspective like that. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting. I, I love just like following and tracking like the trends and how they change and, and the way people are kind of evolving, changing mm-hmm. over time. It's, it's fascinating to see us grow as a, as a group, as humanity together. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you a, a couple more questions about, about running specifically. So because, just because I'm curious, so what is the difference between you're the re- American record holder for the half marathon and you have the fastest marathon time ever run by an American? What is the difference between those things? Like, <laughs> so what's the difference between, Amer- ran- why aren't you the American record holder for marathons and for half marathons? What is the, what's the distinction between being the American record holder and being the fastest blank time ever run by an American. Right. So the thing is they have all these rules about courses that are eligible for records. So uh, when I ran my half marathon is on an eligible course. And so it's the official American record for the half marathon. When I ran two, uh, that was Houston half marathon. Okay. And then when I ran two Oh four fifty eight, that was in the Boston marathon, which is not eligible for course for records. Really? Um, it drops. Yeah. It drops too much elevation and it can't be point to point. And it makes sense, right? It's like for the very reason that day, like we had a really nice tailwind that was certainly super helpful, you know, a big advantage. I so guess. that's, that's why yeah, I know Boston's still a tough course. It's, but got, it, that's, it's got a net drop in elevation, but there's also Heartbreak Hill. I mean, it has one of the right. biggest, biggest single climbs of any major marathon course. Right. Yeah. No, it's it's a super challenging course, but, um, you know, it's their rules. But the, the great thing about having run 20458 in Boston is, you know, that course has so much history itself. Yeah. That the fact that that's like the fourth fastest time ever run on that course in 123 years is still like I, I can take a lot of, you know, satisfaction, I guess. I don't know if that's totally the right word. That's but totally the right sad. word. Yeah. <laughs> you I'd, know, be, so I'd be it, I'd be satisfied. <laughs> you take it huh yeah. 
So, so what is it? I, so yeah, that's that's the difference. Have you seen these guys that are trying? I think Nike is doing it, where they tried to break the two-hour barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, they created like ideal conditions. It's a it's a loop. Right. They had pacers around them the whole time. Like, right. Um, but but what what do you think about the the sort of circumstances under which they're trying to break that two-hour barrier? Yeah. Oh, I love that they're going after it because I think it's a huge step towards us seeing someone do it in an actual competition. Um, You know, if they did it in those circumstances, uh, at least the professional world wouldn't think of it as like a legit sub two hour marathon. But then at the day, the guy's still running that pace. You know, yeah, he has pacemakers and perfect conditions and all these things working for his advantage, but he's still moving his body that fast. And I was blown away that he got his, you know, Kipchoge got as close as he did to breaking two two hours. Seconds off, right? I think he was like 20 seconds off, but still like that. My mistake. (laughs) That's way different. Yeah, it is. No, but I was so, I was blown away. He got that close. And what it does is it creates this, uh, you know, mindset shift. When you see someone get that close, you're like, whoa, yeah, we can actually do this. And guys start to believe and train like they can actually do it. It's like the same thing as for a long time, they never thought anyone would break the four minute mile back in the day. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, people started to get close. People started to believe they could do it. One guy did it. And then the floodgates opened and the same thing, I think for the the two hour marathon, it's, it is going to take a while, I would think. But you know, with that said, I guess you never know, right? Like we just need an extraordinarily talented person who trains in the right uh, atmosphere with the right people. And and it it could happen. I mean, I think, I think, I think what you, to your point, like you just made is that it's, when when somebody gets as close as they got uh, with uh, under those perfect conditions, it lets you know that it's possible. And and we've talked about this before. When your mind knows it's possible, you can your body can almost can almost adapt to that mental state. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we we function out of what we believe is possible and what we believe about ourselves. Right. Uh, that's why, like, I talk a lot about that. In my book is like. What, what are you choosing to believe? Cause I think what I found about like how to cultivate these beliefs about myself is I have to cultivate in my mind with positive self-talk and it's, it's not something that I can, it's a one-time shot where I can fill myself up, uh, in one, one sit down and be like, that's enough positive self-talk that's going to last me through this next race or through the next week. It's mm-hmm. something where it's a daily cultivation, um, something that has to be developed over a long period of time. It's similar to running that way. You know, it's like running, it just takes step after step after step. Like I think I worked it out one time that I run nearly half a million steps to train for one race. And those are just steps that have to happen every single day. And I feel like it's like that for my thought life as well. It's like for me to really cultivate and believe these things about myself, it's something that I have to do every single day. And and I have to partner with the thoughts that I believe about myself and want to believe about myself. And then I kind of just have to watch the thoughts past that that I know are not true and that are not helping me. And how, I mean, I, I find that like, huh. so easier said than done, right? Like how do we, totally. how, how do we, manage that in this age where we are constantly fed, you know, disproportionate lives on social media and on television and all of these ways in which we feel like we are inadequate. How do we, how do we constantly reaffirm our, not just our adequacy, but our exceptionalism? Yeah. And I, I think for myself, a lot of that comes through prayer, through Bible reading, through 
asking God this question, like, how do you see me right now? Mm -hmm. And as I begin to see myself, how God sees me in every single situation, it reminds me of what I'm trying to cultivate, what I'm going after. Um, and it empowers me to, to believe the right things about myself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, like, I think that's, I think that's a that's a great way to gain that perspective. I just feel like so much of that is easier said than done, you know. So so many people, and I think that's actually a really freeing way to look at the gospel and to look at at God's view of yourself. Because I think so many people, so so many people see see religion in general and Christianity in particular as a limiter, as this right. thing, as a list of things you cannot do, and as a right. as an as an acknowledgement of your failure to be to to live up to god's standard but the real freeing part of that is that in in the gospel we are seen by god as perfect right and a reminder that god has a as an additional purpose for you in that side of perfection as opposed to it being about all the things you did wrong it's actually not about that it should be freeing from that perspective right totally and that's i love that because one of my like i said my the story of my career is picking myself after disappointment after disappointment mm -hmm. and i remember when i do that i'd reflect back on the proverb that says though a righteous man falls seven times he rises again and i would think about that it's kind of perplexing me because first of all you don't think of a righteous person as falling right like isn't that right. what makes them righteous right. if they don't fall but like i don't think that was the point of it i think the point of that that wisdom there is that if you believe you're righteous, you're going to act like you're right, you're righteous. That belief in your identity as being righteous is what's going to empower you to get back up. And it's, it doesn't mean you're not going to fall again, but it, it, it should be a very empowering message that, um, you know, allows us to get back up over and over and over again. Yeah. And now, now that's great on the days when you're feeling up to it. How do you get how do you stay inspired on the on the down days? Like everybody has up and down days, you know. And unless you have um, a neurological uh, issue, they, you know, they're they're kind of kind of balanced out over time. But but you're talking about a daily picking up of this mentality. How do you do it on your lowest days? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I give myself uh, the grace to go through those moments and to kind of sympathize with myself in a way because I tend to be pretty hard on myself mm -hmm. I'm like kind of my my hardest critic right and uh, a you know a lot of the pressure I'd feel when I was running was self-imposed pressure right and so I had to learn to like give myself grace to go through those moments and be okay that maybe it was going to take me a little bit of time to pull myself out of them, you know? Um, and then I think the other thing that kind of helped me was um, just surrounding myself with with amazing people that were going to speak life into me. Yeah. And I feel like, okay. Um, yes, I think that's, I think that's great. And I, I feel like we all need to have it's, it's like an Instagram trend of cutting, cutting, silencing the haters and only pinning people around you that make you feel better about yourself. But it's kind of, it's kind of true, right? You want to silence the haters. You want to only keep people around you that are encouraging you and helping you to achieve the goals that you set out, not the people that are, that drag you down. 
Yeah, and you got to have you got to know yourself and your boundaries and what you're willing to challenge yourself with. Mm-hmm. So like for example, for myself, I wrote about this in my book that I never read one article written about me. I never listened to one like podcast about me. Uh, I don't even listen to my own podcast, <laughs> record, you know. <laughs> this will be my only time listening to this podcast. Right. But a lot of that's just cuz I know myself and I know right. like negative things stick with me. Like I can remember, for example, early on in the Twitter days, I had to drop out of the Chicago marathon with fatigue. And I remember telling people just how heartbroken I was to not get to the start line. And I remember there was just a flooded with positive comments and there was this one negative comment. And I can still remember that one negative comment. I can't remember one of the positive comments exactly. So it's like, I just know, like for me, like I need to create healthy boundaries mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. I'm not looking at that stuff. So like I rarely I rarely look at feedback unless it's coming from people who know me and are close to me and right. I want to speak into my life. Yeah. I mean and and like I think that's again in the age of social media where people can say everything behind a keyboard the I, I it's it's just reality that the, that the negative has 10 times the impact of a positive comment. But then with social mm-hmm. media, people are that much more negative. They're 10 times more negative. So it's right. like it ends up becoming a 100x multiplier because you right. get 10 times the negative comments and they each have 10 times the impact. All of a sudden, you know, the fighting against that becomes this, right. this it's a deluge. You're trying to bail out, right. a, bail out a canoe with a thimble. <laughs> I love that. That's a great analogy. So you set out with this goal to use your running in order to uh, in order to inspire people and to end up helping others. And I'm assuming that leads you to start the Steps Foundation, which you began in in 2000. When, when did you begin the Steps Foundation? In 2010. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was kind of. You know, like I talk about having that original vision of running with the best guys in the world, which you've accomplished. Having- Yeah. And having that gift so I could help other people. I didn't know how you help other people through running. Like that was very vague to me for the first like 10 plus years of of my running career. And then it wasn't until after the Beijing Olympics in 2008, uh, my wife, Sarah and I, we served as ambassadors for team world vision one year during the Chicago marathon. We were part of a group of about 500 people that, um, raise money and support awareness race, the Chicago marathon. And I've run for team world vision, brought clean. I've run the LA marathon for team world vision. Michael Chitwood. Yeah. And, oh, right on. Um, and I, Very and, cool. I, and one of my best friends, he is one of like the big legacy guys. He, he's runs like four marathons a year. His name's, uh, his name's Ricky. Um, I can't, I can't remember his last name right now, but he is, I'm very yeah. close with him. I just don't know. His, um, but yeah, so he, he, I, he, he is, he's gone to Africa to help dig the wells. He is, um, and he runs, very cool. my church does a global 6k day and, yeah, yeah. uh, we do all that stuff. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm big fan. So keep going. So you, you, you yeah. ran in Chicago. Yeah. So we, we were part of this thing and, um, it brought clean water to 90,000 people in Zambia. So we had the privilege after the Beijing Olympics of going to these communities and visiting them and doing uh, ribbon cutting ceremonies for the newly placed boreholes that had just been put in. And mm-hmm. I will never forget talking to this guy in the community because it's cool in Zambia because they like all speak English there, which I was surprised by. I didn't think yeah. anyone's going to know English. But anyways, this guy's standing next to me and he's not like working for World Vision. He's just a normal guy in the community. He's like, 
like, I am so grateful that you guys brought clean water to our community because you did this. Everyone in my community, their life expectancy is going to go up by 10 years. And I was just blown away by that. And you think about 90,000 people all getting 10 years of extra life because we ran a race for a cause and a reason like that just blew my socks off. I was like, that's how you help other people through running. Dang, like I need to do more. So my wife and I, we went home, we started the Hall Steps Foundation to continue to support uh, World Vision in their efforts because we love that organization. And then to support uh, other organizations that we really believe in. And um, and then we have some of our own projects we're also involved in. So we're, we're just all about trying to empower those who are impoverished to um, get themselves out of poverty, to give them the opportunities they need to to, um, to, to, yeah, get themselves out of poverty and have healthy whole lives. What do you say to people? And I got a lot of criticism for this and I think it's valid criticism. Uh, you're running for clean water in Africa. Um, what about places like Flint where they don't have clean water in America? Right. uh, You know, how do we, how do we reconcile that? Yeah, no, that is, that's a great question. And kind of how I reconcile it is like, God puts something inside each one of us that pulls on our heartstrings an issue, whether it's cancer or, yeah, clean water in Michigan or whatever it might be. And so my general message to the running community is like, I don't really care all that much what it is for you, but I know that there's something that your heart beats for and like get involved with that and like find a way to support that. Take your step with that. And so it's like, you know, we can't all take on every single issue, but I think God does like give us a certain heart for a certain issue and all those people need to come together and do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I guess I'm, what I'm, what I'm hearing you say too, is it's not a zero sum game. Like you can You can want a group of people over here to have clean water and also want a group of people over right. here to have clean water. It's just that the the whatever it is that you're working towards, or you can want this group of people to have clean water and you can also want uh, pediatric bone cancer to be cured. Right. But right. you're just you're do you have to focus on one thing at a time. Right. It's like I'm going after one thing and then I'm cheering on everyone else who's going after their right. thing, you know, but I, it's physically impossible to go after everything, you know? Yeah. So why'd you write the book? I mean, ultimately, you've you've accomplished the goal of running, uh, of running with the most elite, the elite runners in the world. You've accomplished or at least begun to use that platform to inspire change and to and to inspire people to actually affect people's lives, um, including lives you've directly affected. Uh, what what was the purpose of writing a book and what do you hope people take away from it? Yeah, so I was man, I, I wrote about 10 different books, like the first chapter <laughs> throughout my career. <laughs> right. And then, you know, always felt like it just wasn't the right time until I, I ran the world marathon challenge after I had already retired from professional running, which that's seven marathons in seven days on seven continents, oh. which it was quite an experience. There's two whole chapters in my book just about that experience. Cause it was, it was an amazing experience. Grueling got stress fracture on day five. In I can't imagine. Yeah. <laughs> then still had to, you know, run two more marathons with the stress fracture but um you know to pull back and answer your question after that last marathon in sydney it felt like that season of going after my potential as a professional runner or as a runner in general was was over it was complete it's like jesus on the crossing it is finished like it was it was done you know (laughs) and so then it was time for me to move into this next season of my life which is trying is taking everything that i learned from the previous 
previous season of life and using it to encourage, to help other people. So I coach my wife who's still running professionally. I coach some other pro athletes up here in Flagstaff. And then I do some online personal coaching as well. And, Mm -hmm. you know, my goal is to make my ceiling, my athletes floor and for them to do all the things I did right. And to not do any of the things I did wrong. um, It's been a really fun adventure of of shifting my focus from me developing my talent, which I don't think there was anything wrong with me trying to develop my talent for that season of life. But I don't think it was supposed to meant it wasn't meant to last forever. And eventually uh, all I believe eventually all of our paths, all of our goals, all of us trying to get to our full potential. The ultimate part, uh, reason for that is so that we can help other people. Mm. And, and, you know, so now that's what I'm going after. Like, how can my, how can my journey inspire and help other people on their journey? And that's, that's why I wrote the book was just to share all these life lessons I learned, um, on the road in various races. And I talk about the good days. I talk about the bad days and, um, share just directly from my heart. Um, everything that I feel like God was uh, teaching me during that time. What is the number one lesson that you really want to make sure people walk away with? So for myself, I get confused pretty easily and like overwhelmed pretty easily. So I have to constantly kind of pull myself back to just like, what's the point of life? Mm -hmm. And I remind myself of this all, (laughs) all the time. Like I have all this stuff going on, all all this stuff I'm going after. And, but at the end of the day, like the point of my life, is to love God, love myself, and love other people. And I think those three things are all really connected. You know, it's like if you if you see God for how he truly is, it's going to make you fall in love with him. And then once you realize you're created in his image, it's going to make you fall in love with you. Mm-hmm. And then when you're in love with God and in love with you, love is overflowing out of you onto other people. So right. um, I just encourage people just like sometimes, you know, we just need to pull back and like, keep it simple and be like, the point is just to love other people, love God, love yourself. And the world would be a better place. I believe if we all do that. Well, I've taken a lot of your time. I think that's beautiful. I have taken a lot of your time and I really want, um, I, I want to let you go, but I want to ask you two things before I let you go. First off, if people want to follow up with you, how can they do it and where should they contact you? Yeah. So they can connect with me on uh, Twitter and Instagram. I'm Ryan hall three. And then uh, my wife and I, we also have a website, ryanandsarahhall.com. All right. I'll put links to all of that in the show notes as well as to a link to go by Run the Mile You're In by Ryan Hall. Uh, One last question, and I ask it to everybody. What is one daily habit that people can start doing today that will help improve their lives? Drink 20 ounces of water right when you get up. <laughs> I swear, <laughs> it's it's the best way to start the day. It changed my life doing that. I learned that from a nutritionist at Stanford. That was just the first thing that popped in my head. So in no particular order, drink 20 ounces of water right when you get up. <laughs> That's great. That's phenomenal. Ryan Hall, thank you so much for your time. This was absolutely inspiring. Again, the book, Run the Mile You're In, uh, available at Better Bookstores, wherever Better Books are sold, as they say. Well, I have to tell you, I have not read this book, uh, and now I'm going to do what so many of you who have listened to this podcast are going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to. This, this to me is like a, a guy who can run a sub 205 marathon uh-huh. and and has and has used that for his uh, to enhance his faith and his life and his productivity and all the rest of that. That's like that's like the, the Navy SEAL books that I love. Yeah. It's not like he came up with a concept. This is his life. Right. He let, yeah. And you know, the amount of time you have to spend to be able to run a sub 205 oh marathon, it's amazing he can string a sentence well, together. Mind control. Right, but it's amazing he can string a sentence yeah, together. Yeah, yeah, it's true. You know, it's so true. It, yeah. it's, 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 
the fact that he's written a book and that he's and he's imparting the the, the wisdom and knowledge it takes to get there is is great. Um, you guys all just got a little taste of it. Go ahead and buy the book, Run the Mile You're In. Link to where to buy that in the show notes as well as all of his social media. Thank you guys so much for listening. That's it for our show today. If you like Intelligence Free Life, the podcast, please rate, comment, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. It helps us out a lot. You would like to follow up with us, John, is facebook.com slash John Tesh. We are there all the time posting videos, going live. We try to respond to every comment. He's also on Twitter, at John Tesh, on Instagram, at John Tesh underscore IFYL. I'm Gib Gerard, facebook.com slash Gib Gerard, at Gib Gerard on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you guys so much for listening. Well done.